when King Solomon was dedicating the temple that he had built in Israel generations before Jesus. He said in 1 Kings 8.27, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. It's an interesting question, is it? Will God indeed dwell on earth? Today we're going to start this new series going through the Gospels of the New Testament. And as many of you might know, the word gospel literally just means good news. Or if you go back into the language, it means God's spell or good story. It's the good story, it's the good news about what God has done in this world. But it wasn't just used by Christians, it was also used by other religious people. The emperor in Rome would say that he was the gospel of Rome, that he was the good news. But of course, we saw how that turned out most of the time. But Jesus is the good news, and biblically, the good news is the life of Jesus Christ as Savior of humanity, and the good news is reported to us through four letters named after the author of each letter. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels that we have in the Bible, and many people might ask, well, why do we have four Gospels? Why not just one big story? I think there's a couple things we can look at there. Think about when you see a quartet of people singing a song, and they have four parts of harmony, and together they come together to make an even more beautiful song, don't they? And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I don't know if they could sing in real life. They look like singers, don't they? Especially those epic beards. The peaches, (laughs) yeah. They look like they could sing, but they sing these parts of the song of Jesus' life, and we can more fully hear through their different perceptions that the Holy Spirit used them for. Not only that, I think another interesting thing is if you go back to the Old Testament, if somebody was bringing forth an accusation or a claim, it was required that two or more witnesses would come forward with that story. And so God goes above and beyond that and says, I'll give you four witnesses to tell you the greatest story that has ever been told. I'll give you four men who either spent time directly with Jesus or spent time with the people that spent time directly with Jesus to tell you the story of his life. Each of the four Gospels also seems to be written with a slightly different audience in mind. Now, some Bible scholars argue about this, but I think it's valid. Matthew seems to be written more for the Jewish mind. He speaks a lot of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus as the Messiah that the Jewish nation has been waiting for for thousands of years. Mark is very different than Matthew. He seems to be addressing Roman audiences. Mark's gospel is quick. Everything happens suddenly. It doesn't even start until he's already a grown man. Mark like doesn't even care about baby Jesus. Like, he just starts like he's a man, okay? And and it's it's action packed for the Roman audiences that are all about 
What is the next action? What is the next thing that we're doing? Luke seems to be more Greek-minded. The Greeks were focused on philosophical ideals. They spent a lot of time thinking about what does it mean to be the ideal man? You can go all the way back to Plato, and, and they're sitting around talking about what does it mean to be the ideal man? And so Luke talks about this. He talks about the son of man in the fullness of humanity. These three gospels together are known as the synoptic gospels, which is a fancy way of saying they are synopsises, brief tellings of the story of Jesus's life. You read those three gospels and it's just, there's a start, there's a middle, there's a finish. It's a, it's a story. John is like, ha not doing that. John is very different. He seems to not be writing to one specific group of first century people in mind. John seems to be writing to the whole world throughout all of time. And he is not remotely concerned with the synopsis of the story. John is concerned about sharing with us the identity of who Jesus is. Now, even though I just said John is not worried about the chronology of the story we are actually going to start our chronological journey in John. Because like I said, Mark kind of doesn't start until Jesus is already a grown man. He's getting baptized. Matthew and Luke start around the time that Jesus is born. They're like, you know, sweet baby Jesus, that whole thing. John says, I'm going to start even earlier than that. In fact, John says, I'm going to start at the beginning. The very beginning, before there was time, before there was creation. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, if you have a device or that beautiful paper Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 1, verse 1. This is actually the prologue to the gospel stories. If you've read a book and you read that that beginning that just kind of sets up everything, this is what John 1... This is, and I know I say this all the time, and I always mean it, this is absolutely one of my favorite pieces of Scripture in the entirety of the Bible. It is pivotal on our Christology, Christology of who Jesus is. It is so powerful, this chapter, that in medieval times, some Christians would write it out, put it on a piece of paper in an amulet, and they would wear it around their necks because they believed that it might ward off disease and evil spirits. One preacher I listened to called this chapter Jesus' resume. And let me tell you, it's the most impressive resume you'll ever see. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. I want you to notice that word, word. This is going to get complicated. That word, word, capital W. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. I could spend the next four weeks trying to unwrap that sentence. I'm not going to. I'm going to try to get through 18 verses today. We'll see. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, before I even unpack that verse, I want you to notice Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. 
It is not on accident that those two verses sound virtually identical. Genesis tells us the story of creation. John also starts by telling us the story of creation, but giving us another piece of it. The mirror image is not identical. John is going to tell us about the new creation. And John starts with in the beginning, and he's not talking about the beginning of Jesus' life. He's not talking about the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's talking about the beginning, the very beginning, the beginning of all time and space, the beginning as we understand it. And then he says, in the beginning, the Word. Now, entire books are literally written about this Word, capital W, Word. I'm going to do my best to unpack it briefly, but like I said... Theologians have been trying to grasp the fullness of what this word means since this was written. In Greek, this word is logos. Logos. For the Greek mind, the logos is the ordering principle of the universe. It is whatever it is. That gives the universe order and purpose. The Logos is the first cause. It is the reason. Not just the reason like, oh, I'm giving you a reason. But the reason like the way that thought happens. It is the reason why anything exists. It gives form and order to life. Like I said, Plato, 400 years before the time of Jesus, they were sitting around talking about what is the logos? What is the reason, the idea, the form, the the first cause for why we are all here? And John says, in the beginning was the logos. In Hebrew, this word is the word memra. It also means word, or it means speech. In Hebrew thought, now follow me, this is more philosophy, but in Hebrew thought, there was this idea that before anything exists, there has to be a thought to make that thing exist. And if there's a thought, there's a thinker who's thinking the thought. Okay? No, right? And so if there's a thinker who's thinking the thought and then he wants to, he, she, it, whatever it is, wants to create, to make that thing happen, then how do they do that? They speak. They give the word. They give the memra. It is the way in which the original thought to create then created. So John says, in the beginning was the memra, was the logos. He's saying in the beginning, there was this thing that is the ordering principle for why everything exists. There was this thing that gives all of the universe meaning and purpose and organization. It says in the beginning was 
the Logos. Okay. So it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God. So this thing, this Logos is with God in the very beginning. And then it says, ready? That it was God. That the Logos, the Memra, not only was in the beginning, not only was with God, but that it is God. Okay. So simply, we're going to cheat for it a little bit, because verses 16 and 17 tell us that that Logos is Jesus. That that Logos is the Son of God. Now, his name isn't Jesus yet because he wasn't born until around the year zero, right? His name isn't Jesus yet. That's a name that's given to him once he becomes flesh. But the Son of God is the Logos, is the Memra, who is present with God at creation and actually is God. And that the Son of God is the Word. He is the Logos. He is, He is. think about this, if God is the Memra, and he speaks everything into existence. How does Genesis tell us that everything came into being? God spoke, and it was. So that speech, that creative energy that goes into creation is the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. If that doesn't hurt your brain, I don't think you're thinking with me, okay? Okay. <laughs> Think with me. Don't, don't just say like, yeah, I heard that in church. No, think about that. Jesus, the Son of God, is the creative work of God in this world. And so if God t- is a spirit, which John tells us later in chapter 4, and he doesn't have a physical form that makes sense to us, then somehow he interacts with this stuff, this matter, and his interaction with it is the Logos, the Memra, Jesus, the Son of God. It is the vocalization of God's work, the physical work that creates the physical universe. J.B. Phillips, a Bible translator, once said his version of John 1-1 would be, at the beginning, God expressed himself. You guys are artistic, really like that. You're like, ooh, expression. The Son of God is the expression of God in the universe. C.K. Barrett, a British Bible scholar, said, John intends the whole of this gospel should be read in light of this verse. The deeds and work of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. He says, if this is not true, The book is blasphemous. That's true. Arius was a Catholic priest in around the year 300. And uh, he tried to argue. Can we throw up that picture of Arius? Kind of a weird looking dude. Let's be real. Arius became known as a heretic because he tried to argue that the son of God was a created being 
like everything else, and it became known as the great Arian heresy. Now, he ended up being excommunicated from the church for a while for this teaching, but I also just want to tell you, because it's one of my favorite stories from church history, that he made another guy named St. Nicholas so angry that St. Nicholas was said to have walked across the aisle at the Council of Nicaea and punched him in the face. Now, you probably thought that theological councils couldn't get exciting, but this one sure did. Because St. Nicholas and everyone else that was there understood John 1.1 is saying very clearly that the Logos, the Memra, the Word, is the Son of God. The way that they would say it is, there is not a time in which he was not. Arius tried to argue, there was a time when he was not. And they said, "Uh uh-uh. Now that story is up for debate, but I I really want to believe it's true. Because I'm also named Nicholas. Not directly after him, but I'm going to claim it. Now, side note. Side note. Okay, over here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you ever are talking to somebody who might approach your front door as a missionary from the Mormon church or the Jehovah's Witness church. They might pull out their Bible and they might show you John 1.1 in their Bible. But there's a word added to their version. And it's only one letter. And this shows you how close you can be to heresy with one letter. Because in their version of the Bible, it says, In the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was a God. Lowercase g. Because within their religions, they believe you can become a God. That if you become close enough to what they believe God is, that you can somehow become a God yourself. And so they add this little a in there. to say, see, Jesus was just a God problem with that is if you talk to any Greek scholar, that A does not exist. People have asked him, where'd you get the A from? And they say, oh, this guy said it. And the guy's like, I did not say that. There's no real Greek scholar that will tell you that there should be that word there that turns this entire verse into heresy. It does not say that Jesus is a God. It says he is God. The God. The one and only. Just food for thought. If you're ever talking to somebody, be gracious to them. Show them love. But if they, if you say, hey, Jesus is God. And they say, oh, no, no, look. Look in John 1.1. 1, 1. It says, a God. I'm like, ah, it's not. I don't like your translation. And if you want to be really nerdy, you can actually bust out the Greek and be like, see, if you want to talk about in arche halaga. Ke, no, you won't do that. But, <laughs> but you can if you want to. He's not a God. He is the God. Let's continue with this prologue. We've gotten through one verse so far. Ready? <clears throat> John 1, 2 through 5. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's a sentence that if your child wrote, you'd be like, what? What? But theologically, it, it, it's strong. Okay. In him 
was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John doubles down on his declaration. He's saying the Son of God was there in the very beginning. Before there was anything that we have a concept of as time and space, the Son was there. And not only was he present, but he, in fact, is the designer the creator of everything that exists. Nothing exists without the sun's hand of creativity upon it. If this doesn't like expand your brain about Jesus, pay attention. It's not just the life and death of Christ. He is the creative presence of God in creation. In him was life and the life that was the light of men. Saying life itself comes from him. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says that God breathed life into man. That word, pneuma, the breath of life. Now, if God is spirit and unseeable to our human eyes, then that means when God's walking through the garden with, with Adam and Eve, this is my belief, and maybe I'm a heretic, I hope not. I think that's the Son of God walking around, interacting with them as a physical form of God in creation. And he breathes life into Adam, Adam. And life, that word life that's used there is interesting because it's not, there's, there's different words in Greek for life. There's bios, which is biology, it's physical life. There is psyche or psyche, which is your mental life, your thoughts. But then there's another word, zoe. And Zoe is a quality of life. It's the good life. It's life that comes from God and is abundant. And he says that that life comes from the Logos. And he speaks about light. Light is spoken of seven times just in these few verses. I don't know if you noticed that. Light comes again and again. Light literally brings life. If you remember, anybody remember seventh grade science class? Remember learning about photosynthesis? Fun word. Light literally gives life to those of us on the earth. It gives life to vegetation. It gives life to everything. And he's saying without the light, the logos, there is no life. And the Son of God is the light that gives life. And he says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There is no spiritual darkness that can overcome the light of the life that the Son brings into the world. Now, your Bible might say, uh, has not comprehended it. Which I don't think is as good of a translation, but it still works. Because it's saying... The darkness, the the things of evil, the spiritual darkness can't even comprehend the power of the light of the Logos of the Son of God. So whether you say comprehend or overcome, which means the the darkness can't possibly be uh, against God. Again, we've talked about this, the difference between God and the devil. People think of them as like equal opposites, but they're not. The devil is darkness, but he's a little tiny darkness, and God is an 
infinite light. And in the same way, the light is far stronger than the darkness. You can even just think about this. If you're in a room this size and we just light a couple of candles, all of a sudden you can see people. That little tiny bit of light is far more powerful than the darkness is. The light chases away the darkness. Continues to talk about this. John 1, verses 6 through 8 are an interesting little narrative section. He goes away from talking about these giant ideas, and he talks for just a second about John the Baptist. And if you, if you didn't grow up in church, this can be confusing. John the Revelator or John the Disciple is the same guy who's writing this letter, but now he's going to talk about John the Baptist. It's just like in our church. We have Tim's everywhere. They got John's everywhere, right? So he's John the Revelator is talking about John the Baptist, And he says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John's talking about John the Baptist, who's this witness. He says, basically he's saying, you know that guy who wears like camel fur and eats locusts and everyone thinks he's crazy? He knows what I'm talking about. We're on the same page. So he said, he's, he's again, the, the multiple witnesses, right? It's not just me. John the Baptist also knows all this to be true. Verse 9. <clears throat> the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now John comes and he he hits this major theme through his whole letter that Jesus is the illumination of God into the world, that he is the light for the world, and that he has come to save the world. However, even though Jesus was the very creative force that created the world, I, I use the word force. Don't get, I'm not trying to say like he's the force. No, he's, a, he's Jesus. He is God. Right? He is the creativity of God who creates the world, and yet when he comes into the world as a human being, they don't even know him. If you look in the original language there, he says, like, when he came to his own, his own, reject him, those two words, own, are actually different. When he, it says, when he came into everything that's his, all of creation, all of the dirt and water and the skies and the seas, everything is his, those things don't reject him. They know who he is. The rocks cry out. So he came to his own, but his own people rejected him. Isn't that interesting? He creates everything, but the only thing that is made in his image is that which rejects him. But there's good news, thankfully, since we're talking about the gospel. And the good news is, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
Now, this is looking way ahead in the story. But John points towards the future fulfillment of the story that Jesus brings grace and mercy and salvation to those who will believe in him. And they will be admitted membership within the family of God. And notice the wording here. Not because of their ethnicity. Not because of the nation that they were born into or because of their biological family. Not because of anything that has to do with their flesh or their will. They are admitted as children of God because it's his will to do so. He's basically saying, there's no try hard that can get you into this. There is just the love and grace and mercy of God. And then he does so by becoming a human and taking on the name Jesus, which is actually the name Yeshua, which literally means God is salvation. He comes into the world that he created. He's rejected by his own image bearers, and yet he still comes and he says, My name is God is salvation. That's pretty epic. Now, one of the most important scriptures in the whole of the Bible, and one that tells us exactly who we're talking about, I kind of cheated forward to this, right? In the beginning is the Lagos, the Memra. Verse 14 tells us exactly what we're talking about. And the Word, the Lagos, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and The incarnation of God, Jesus Christ, is that Logos, is that Memra who created everything. The fact that he became flesh is very important here to John because he's actually fighting against another heresy that has popped up in the time of him writing this. There are a group of people called Gnostics, and they believed in something called Docetism, which they basically would just kind of explain away some things that they didn't like by saying, well, Jesus was never actually a person. He was a phantom. You should laugh at that. He was a ghost, right? He didn't actually exist. He was just kind of a spirit hovering around the world. They did not want to believe that he was a real person because if he's a real person, then he beats death and there's a resurrection and that messes up everything that they believe, but that's the truth. And so he says, he became flesh. He's specifically fighting against these heretics that are saying that Jesus did not actually become flesh. But we know from Romans and other chapters that if he doesn't become flesh, then his sacrifice for us doesn't work. He must step into his creation in order to save us. And he does. And he dwelt among us. You see that line? He dwelt among us. This is a fascinating word, dwelt, because it actually is the same word as the word tabernacle. Right? If you remember from the Old Testament, the presence of God, when they didn't have a temple, they had a mobile temple, a tent called the tabernacle. 
big, nice tent. And inside that tent is a, is a room, and that's the Holy of Holies. And nobody's allowed to go in there because that's where the presence of God is. That's where the presence of God tabernacles among his people. And so this tells us that the presence of God comes in Jesus Christ and tabernacles among his people, not in a locked room behind golden cords, but right in the midst of his people, with us, the presence of God. He dwells among us. And this answers King Solomon's question, doesn't it? But will God indeed dwell on earth? This question that Solomon has asked generations before, as they're talking about a building, he says, no, the presence of God will indeed dwell on the earth, but not in a building, not in a tent, not in a big ornate golden chapel, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And those who saw him indeed saw the very glory of God in Jesus. The Apostle Paul echoes all of this in his letter to the Colossians. I love it. He says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all of creation. That word firstborn means preeminent, not that he was created, but that he is before all things. He's preeminent. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, listen, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here we have another witness. Not just John, not just John the Baptist, but now Paul saying all of these things are true. Jesus Christ is the Logos. In verse 15, another brief narrative comes back into John the Baptist, saying again, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me, ranks before me because he was before me. What a wonderfully confusing sentence. And yet, theologically, it's not. He's saying, he who comes after me, because John is actually Jesus' cousin, who's six months older than him. So he came before Jesus. Jesus is before him because John says, even though baby Jesus was born six months before me, the Son of God was in the beginning. John, who's this guy, I I imagine, this is just my, I imagine everyone who talks to John thinks he is just nuts. Because he says things like, he was who before me is after me and before me. Like, okay, John, but he's the smartest one in the room. He actually gets it. Because the son was in the beginning of creation. The last couple of verses I want to read to you today. John 1, 16 through 18. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The fullness of Jesus leads us to receiving, John says, grace after grace. And the imagery here is beautiful. It's the idea of waves. Grace after grace after grace after grace. And you can sit there and you can stare at the ocean for the rest of your life and the waves will not stop crashing in. Grace, grace, grace. And that comes in the fullness of Jesus. The law that came through Moses meant that we were unable to save ourselves through our own perfect actions. The law was the school teacher to show you and I, you cannot do it on your own. And yet Jesus brings this grace. And he brings it, and he brings it, and he brings it. And I'm so thankful because I need it, and I need it, and I need it. I love this part. It says, nobody's seen God. Do you remember the story where Moses asks God if he can see his face? It's a great story. Moses, I think feeling a little cocky maybe, says, God, I just want to see your face. And God's like, it'll kill you. <laughs> and he says, but here, I'll, I'll tell you what. You go to that little cleft in the rock right there, and you hide in that cleft, and I'll put my hand over you, and then I'll walk past you, And when I walk past you, you can look back and you can see my back. And Moses is like, okay, better better than nothing. I don't know. But but even if you actually like study the language, it's not even his back because again, God doesn't have a physical form unless he's the Son of God. And so it's actually more saying, after I pass by, you can see my afterglow. Like just the the power that like surrounds the Spirit of God. And that is so powerful that when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai after talking to God, his face is glowing. It is shining, so much so that he has to put a veil on because people are freaked out. Why is your face glowing, Moses? Is there some radioactive stuff on top of Mount Sinai? What's happening? Just being in the presence and seeing the afterglow of God caused Moses to glow. Now think about this. The presence of God is so powerful that just being near it caused a man's face to shine brightly enough to freak people out. Now think about this. The fullness, the unfiltered, complete, total fullness of God that can make a man's face glow is in Jesus. It's in Jesus, the Logos, the one who comes to you and says, follow me. Jesus is the word of God, meaning he is the physically seeable presence of God inside of his own creation. For the Greeks, they would have understood he is the logos. He is the ordering principle with which the universe exists. He is the first cause. He is the reason. The Hebrews would have said he is the 
the action, behind the voice, behind the thought, behind the thinker. He is the presence of God in the world. He is the fullness of Yahweh, the holy God of Israel. Amongst his own creation, because of his love for his people, and so he comes in the flesh, and he takes on a human name, and he says, my name is, I am salvation. And he comes to all of us, to you and I, and he says, I have a gift for you. That if you just follow me, I'll give you all of that. That light, that life, that zoe, the good life, the purpose, the meaning, the reason, everything behind everything, I will give it to you just because I love you and you are my child. If that doesn't make you want to love Jesus, I don't know what else to say, so let's just pray.